patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 79 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you so much for listening to this program. I hope you are having a wonderful President's Day holiday, long weekend. Hope you have something special planned as we take this time to remember the office of the presidency and take a little time away from all the things that we are up to and to get a much-needed rest. As a quick reminder, make sure to subscribe to our email list to get the latest notifications and updates about our program, and please consider becoming a Patreon member so that you can get the latest benefits. We have three different membership levels. You can check out the link down in the show notes below to learn more about how you can contribute to the show And I know that this is going to be a banner year about new updates and features that we're releasing in the next coming months. Today's episode is about our second and final member of the Rhode Island delegation, not a small one, just two members. We covered Stephen Hopkins in the previous Sacred Honor series episode. Today, our man is William Ellery. Ellery was born on December 22nd, 1727 in Newport, Rhode Island. Of course, it was a colony at the time. Ellery was a very brilliant young guy. He was very good at Greek and Latin. He was very well read. He attended Harvard, did very well. And he was a merchant, um, a lot like some other founders that we've already covered so far in this series. He also eventually became a customs collector, and then eventually became a clerk at the Rhode Island General Assembly. What's interesting about his career is that as a customs collector, he was able to really gain that firsthand experience of what taxation looked like, because he literally was there to collect the taxes based on the, the occupation. And I'm guessing that he didn't really like a lot of that job there, because with all the taxes that were being implemented by the British, he certainly could see firsthand why people were so angry and why he was essentially doing these jobs. You know, not it wasn't that he was entirely doing this job specifically for the British government, but he clearly saw how people were very frustrated that they were being taxed without any kind of representation. As a clerk at the Rhode Island General Assembly, he obviously learned how to work in state government. He decided to develop close connections with people in the Rhode Island General Assembly. And this really propelled him as someone who is very well connected. And I'm sure it also inspired him to run for office or at least be considered for office in the future. Despite the political upheaval that was happening, Ellery really took this advantage of working as a customs collector to understand the law, understand taxation, 
working as a clerk, he obviously understood how to provide the services necessary to run a government. He also learned how to deal with shipmasters and with longshoremen and with um, people in business. He was very adept at looking at his occupation and figuring out the ways he can grow his influence and get to know other people. And this becomes very, very critical for him later on as we see what he does in the Continental Congress. In 1770, he begins practicing law and became a notable lawyer in his area. Probably not as well known as John Adams, who served on a very high-profile case, notably the one on the Boston Massacre. But nonetheless, Ellery really developed a good reputation as someone who was very knowledgeable, who was cordial, and one who was able to work with various different people from different points of view. Nonetheless, he was also a very, very determined and resolute supporter of independence. This really shows when he starts becoming more active with the Rhode Island Sons of Liberty, whom you might have heard of before. The Sons of Liberty are the ones who staged the Boston Tea Party protest. So they're definitely the ones who, at least from the visual side of things, are the most active and most fervent supporters of independence. In the years running up to 1776, Ellery becomes more and more disillusioned with how the colonies are being run by Westminster. You might recall some of this from Stephen Hopkins, who would later be his future colleague, also from the same colony of Rhode Island. Similar to Hopkins, Ellery was very furious at the way Westminster runs the colonies, or should I say, how he doesn't run the colonies. The big problem is that Westminster, in his view, just simply didn't care about the internal affairs of Rhode Island. This makes a lot of sense given Ellery's experience. He's working as a customs collector, a nexus of multiple industries and various constituents. He literally is seeing the issues that are happening on the ground. Taxation certainly is one of them, or I should say taxation without representation is one of them. Ellery does not believe one bit that Westminster is able to run the internal affairs of Rhode Island. Great Britain is too distant. They really don't send anybody to Rhode Island to talk to people, to learn what the issues are on the ground, what roads need to be fixed, or what services need to be provided. There's nothing really substantive coming out of Westminster when he sees that the British Parliament is imposing taxes and other really punitive measures against Rhode Island and the colonies. He just thinks that they're simply out of touch and not listening at all to the colonists who had all kinds of concerns. Taxation is just one issue. There are also issues with the economy, with infrastructure, and dealing with the Native Americans. There's all other issues that need to be heard, yet that was really not happening at the ground level. Ellery is not initially one of the first delegates to be sent to the Second Continental Congress to consider independence. Initially, it was Stephen Hopkins, as I mentioned earlier, and another man named Samuel Ward. Now, Ward was 
in, in many ways, a big political rival to Stephen Hopkins. And that initially was going to be the plan, is for both Hopkins and Ward to be sent to the Second Continental Congress. However, Ward caught smallpox, and he was just way too ill to be able to serve, and he actually died not long afterwards. Ellery was finally chosen as the replacement for Samuel Ward, and and I don't think it was particularly hard to pick Ellery because he just understood the Rhode Island General Assembly so well. He obviously knew a lot of people. He was very talented, very gifted as a statesman, as a lawyer. And he also got along with Stephen Hopkins. I, I don't think the dynamic between Hopkins and Ward would have been very pretty. <laughs> Long story, but Ward and Hopkins got in a fight about paper money. So imagine imagine if these two were bickering on the floor of the of Independence Hall. I, I don't think that would be a very good visual for the, the Rhode Island colony. Anyway, Ellery had kind of made his case on being selected as a delegate to the Continental Congress, and he just said it very bluntly, and this is one of the things I like about him. He literally said, if there is a vacancy, I wish to take it, and I will be supporting independence. He made it very clear what his position was on independence, and while this might seem obvious to contemporary listeners and to people who read about history nowadays, you have to understand that there were a number of huge wealthy rivals, or elites, I should say, who supported either a moderate stance towards Britain or literally just completely switched sides and supported the monarchy. And I'm going to get to one of those examples in just a bit that has something to do with Ellery. But Ellery is selected to be the second delegate from the colony of Rhode Island, and he becomes the ninth signer of the Declaration of Independence. The story goes that he would stand in some part of the signing room, and the reason why he would stand there at that one location is he wanted to get the best view possible of the facial expressions when one signer after another came up and signed their name on that historic document. He signed the document on August 2nd, 1776. He adopted the declaration on July 4th. On July 10th, 1776, Ellery wrote to his brother, Benjamin, and he said this, quote, We have lived to see a period which a few years ago no human forecast could have imagined to see these colonies shake off and declare themselves independent of a state which they once glorified to call parent, unquote. On the 20th of July, 1776, Ellery wrote to a man named Reverend Ezra Stiles, who then was the president of Yale University. And this is what Ellery wrote. He wrote, The door is shut. We have been driven into a declaration of independency and must forget our former love of our British brethren. The sword must determine our quarrel, unquote. He also had that amazing vantage point that I just mentioned earlier. He wrote about that famous event, which he got to see firsthand. Quote, 
I was determined to see how they all looked as they signed what might be their death warrant. I placed myself beside the secretary, Charles Thompson, and eyed each closely as he affixed each name to the document. Undaunted resolution was displayed in every countenance, unquote. I want to take a moment here to really recognize how powerful of a statement that is and how much truth it really had. It wasn't just the signing of a document saying that you wanted to be free. It was putting yourself at risk of being arrested, of being tried and hung. It was a risk of losing your family. It was a risk of being bankrupt, potentially for the rest of your life. It was an act of treason in the eyes of the British government. I really like how Ellery portrays this moment and shows that this was not an easy task. He is content, obviously. You can sense how happy he is to see people have that courage when before he might not have seen this day coming. There were people who were sent to the Second Continental Congress. I'm not kidding you. People were sent to the Second Continental Congress who had those views of either some kind of moderation or this loyalty to the British monarchy. For Ellery to deliver this win alongside his peers was a huge, huge moment. And I, I can't begin to imagine what kind of facial expressions he got to see because they can't all be you know, this joyous smile, right? I mean, certainly in hindsight, it seems very real. But when you see the look of people knowing that what they're doing is putting their lives on the line, but they know it's for a greater good, that is what makes the Declaration of Independence so valuable and so historic in its nature of setting that new precedent that no longer would the people have to fear the government in this new land of America. It's that the government should be fearful of the people. And that basic philosophy is still embedded within our basic understanding and value of the American political system. Now, there's a story which I am not sure if it was really true, but it's still funny anyway, so I'm going to tell it to you. You see, Ellery was a pretty small man. He was about 5'5", five five, so he's kind of like a James Madison. Actually, Madison was a little shorter than him. And what happened was that apparently there was a man named Benjamin Harrison who was a much bigger guy than he was. And he, he said something to Mr. Ellery here. Quote, I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Ellery, when we are all hung for what we are now doing. From the size and weight of my body, I shall die quickly. But from your lightness of body, you will dance for some time before you are dead. Unquote. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if this was the best joke, and certainly given the fact how serious the circumstances were, um, I, I don't know how great of a joke this was to Mr. Ellery, but it, it really does show how big the stakes were. Um, and and it's, it's also, I guess, a bit of a compliment, perhaps, to Mr. Ellery. Uh, he's not, as I said earlier, he's not a very tall person. 
He's got a bit of a, a slight build with him, uh, but you know this is a good a good icebreaker, I should say, from Mr. Benjamin Harrison, someone who will be featured in a future episode in the series. Ellery served on the committee to help provide clothing for the American army, but he became very well-versed in understanding the Marine side of things, and that's why he was tasked to be part of the Marine Committee. Knowing those connections, having that experience was very, very critical in him landing this important position. He was also really good at just being diplomatic. He helped with some of the foreign affairs side of things, with the Congress, and he just overall became known as someone whom you can depend on for one to be able to develop good relations with other people. Ellery, unfortunately, kind of like how he anticipated, maybe it was because of the joke that the fellow delegate Benjamin Harrison noted, but he knew that the stakes were just ridiculously high, and yet he still took them. What happened to Ellery's fortunes, unfortunately, is not an exception. Later in 1776, the British invaded Newport, Rhode Island, his hometown. The British burned his house, and they looted his possessions. It is said that Ellery became so destitute that he had to ride a horse around instead of riding a carriage. This is probably just one of many different actions that Ellery had to take in order to cut expenses. And without belittling his financial destitution, there were other signers who went through really, really horrific instances of violence from the British after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Like I said, he was not the only one, and I do think that Ellery given his longevity, as you will tell at the end of this episode, um, he was one who was still able to carry on. I do believe it's because of his Baptist faith. He was very religious, attended the same church in Newport, Rhode Island, and this really contributed to him being a very fervent abolitionist. He was such a fervent abolitionist that he supported anti-slavery measures from a man named Rufus King. Now, I'm not going to go too much into detail about Rufus King. He later became a presidential candidate. He was a senator from New York. Uh, He was a staunch Federalist and was actually the last presidential candidate for the Federalist Party. But King and Ellery had a good relationship with each other. And for them to promote their abolitionist platform, to be that brave to put out what their beliefs were, not to mention the fact that Ellery himself was also a very religious man who cared a lot about putting out his values and not being afraid to show that it is because of his faith that drives what he believes in. This is really an amazing example of leadership and of courage. And these are things that we'll be touching upon a little bit later on in the final part of our episode today. Ellery is one who is becoming an expert in law. 
He serves as Associate Chief Justice and later becomes the Chief Justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. He doesn't serve for a very, very long time. From June 1785 to May 1786, he is Chief Justice. But even despite the fact that he was in the the legal system and he's got other responsibilities to take care of regards to keeping within the constraints of the law, he's not a policymaker after all. And yet he was still brave enough to espouse his anti-slavery views. What is really interesting is that his grandson... William Ellery Channing ultimately became one of the most prominent abolitionists during the time and the run-up to the Civil War. Even though Ellery and King really didn't make a lot of inroads in regards to anti-slavery legislation or policies, I just think it's so touching when his grandson carries the torch from his grandfather, speaks out freely just like his grandfather, and inspires so many people across the nation with his views and for him to stand up for what he believed was morally right and what was a sign of moral leadership for the nation. Ellery had led a long-lasting life and career on fighting for independence. One time when he realized that there were still these moderates who decided that they still wanted to maintain relations with Britain, or at least have that kinship with Britain. Ellery said, quote, You must exert yourself to be ruled by Tories when we may be ruled by sons of liberty. How debasing. There is liberty and fire enough. It only requires the application of the bellows. Blow then a blast that will shake this country. Unquote. Ellery truly had a lot of determination for what he believed in. And this was a, a sentiment that not only was present in himself, but one that was echoed by a lot of his peers. Ellery was one who I think also was quite humble in his way of working as a customs collector before. He was the first customs collector for the port of Newport under the new constitution. And he decided to serve that incapacity for the rest of his life. He was not one to be ambitious to run for the presidency or to become a senator or even a, a congressman. He decided to stick along and be closer to his constituency, or I should say really his hometown and near his friends and family. Now, that is truly admirable for someone like him. I have no doubt that if he was one who got along and was able to really push his ambition to become a senator or a congressman, I think he would have had the potential had he decided to do so. One activity that I thought was very interesting from Mr. Ellery was when he was in the Second Continental Congress, they're debating about some of the issues with regards to payment for uh, soldiers, whether to increase the pay or not. He is with his fellow delegate named George Wythe of Virginia. And what these two gentlemen like to do, and I don't know what where the fascination really comes from, 
But it's certainly an activity that you just simply don't see anymore. And I, I kind of imagine that maybe one day people will read back to some of what they did and be able to engage with it in a different way, perhaps a bit of a renaissance for appreciation of amazing literature from that time period. Ellery and Wythe used to write verses to each other, mainly commentary about what the happenings were in the Continental Congress. And I found one poem here by Ellery called A Commissioner to the People of Philadelphia. Now you might be wondering, wait, isn't Ellery from Rhode Island? So what does Philadelphia have to do with anything? Well, Mr. Ellery didn't quite like this delegate from Pennsylvania. And when I say didn't like, that's a gross underestimate of how much he actually hated this guy from Pennsylvania. (laughs) Ellery is writing about a man named Andrew Allen. Allen was a wealthy guy from Pennsylvania who who got a lot of political positions because of uh, nepotism and uh, these close connections that he had. He probably had didn't have a whole lot of talents himself anyway. Allen was initially a supporter of the colonist concerns in the early stages of the American Revolution. He did not like the intolerable acts that were placed upon the colonies. He didn't like a lot of the taxation policies that were going on. But he was someone who was considered more of a moderate. And moderate is a bit of a blurry definition especially in hindsight, but he was someone who really wanted Congress to find some common ground with Britain. And he just didn't like the way things were going. He didn't like a lot of these independent supporters like Ellery. And he not only was disappointed when he saw that Congress was supporting independence, he left. He withdrew from Congress in June of 1776, so just a month before the signing, and later, in December 1776, he officially became a loyalist, switched sides. He was probably concerned about his assets. Like I said earlier, he was a wealthy man, but you know there were other prominent wealthy individuals like John Hancock, who supported the independence cause. So it, this is another example of how Really, there was there were divisions between the wealthy and uh, the not so wealthy, uh, but it's not very clear cut as to say well clearly all the wealthy people want to go on one side or the other. It really just depends on the politics, depends on the circumstances that each delegate went through. And Ellery thought this would be a perfect time to talk trash about Andrew Allen. Uh, Allen was not there for a very long time, so I don't think he would have been looking forward to something like this. But it is good poetry, though. I wonder if Andrew Allen would appreciate the the good literary skills that Ellery had, despite their huge differences on independence. I will now read to you this brief poem written by Mr. Ellery. Attend all ye people of every degree. No longer pretend that your country you'll free. Declare for your treasons a hearty contrition. Regard as you tender your lives admonition. You are too late to flee from impending perdition. 
who, like me, to the king allegiance will swear, and future submission to Congress forbear. Leave all his old friends to the Parliament's fury, let rebels be hanged without judge or jury. Escapes condemnation to give it or halter, nor needs forfeiture fear, unless times should alter. And if you visually look at the poem here, you'll see that the first letter of each line corresponds to the letter in Andrew Ellen's name. So if you read all those lines, you put them all line up from top to bottom, the first letter of each line will read out Andrew Allen. So it's almost like in this poem, what he's essentially saying is he's kind of pretending that he's Andrew Allen. He's speaking to the people of Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania delegation was instructed, probably through politics and other means, to not support independence. And Ellery is kind of mimicking him as Allen addressing the people of Pennsylvania is saying, I will be allegiant to the crown and uh, all of my friends are gone and they're going to be hanged. And this probably would have resonated with quite a few people at the time, given how sensitive a lot of these issues are. Not to mention, like I said earlier, that signing Declaration of Independence was putting yourself through these potential dangers of being hung, by being condemned, by being regarded as someone of lower class, as standards. That poem is just one example of many that Ellery with wrote to each other. We won't have time to cover all of them, but you get the idea of what some of these delegates used to do in their free time and what they really felt about the environment in which they were serving in. Ellery was actually one of three signers to live up into his 90s. Ellery lived a very long life. He served as that customs collector in the port of Newport. I'm, I'm guessing had it probably had a nickname of some kind at by the end of his career or towards the end of his career. And he died in 1820 at the age of 92. Truly a long life of public service and one who had very modest ambitions but was still able to accomplish the things that he wanted to do in his life. I want to now take some time to reflect on William Ellery, this second delegate from Rhode Island. And there are three big lessons that I think we can take away from Mr. Ellery. The first is that we should learn how to not only hold government officials accountable for not knowing their constituency and constituents, but we should also take our time to understand the constituency and the issues that are facing our district. I bring this up because Ellery had mentioned or had aired those grievances about how the British didn't really care about the internal affairs that were being run in Rhode Island. And he sensed that when people feel like they're not being heard, they're going to rebel. They're going to be angry. And it has to happen ideally in an environment where people can express their grievances through the ballot box. They can vote for someone else. They can vote for term limits. They can take other measures to limit politicians' powers. 
But the important thing is to have that basic understanding of one's constituency and the constituents. This lesson is especially important as we find new ways to engage in civics. With new advances in technology, there are some concerns I have about how people interact with one another. One of those is artificial intelligence. How will people be able to connect with their member of Congress, or at least the office, when members or government officials are doing a lot of things via video call? What happens if a video surfaces of a member of Congress saying something when, in fact, it was because of artificial intelligence and super-duper good graphics that that was able to be manipulated into looking or sounding like that member is saying whatever controversial comment or remark that was? That becomes a bigger question as we move forward. And why it relates to this is because when we think about how we want to make changes in our constituencies and in our localities. We need to be able to ensure that our government officials are being there, are, are talking to those people and hearing the constituents' concerns about what is facing their district. But it also helps when we become curious about what's happening in our schools or in our local economy or with the tourism industry. Maybe it's the roads that are not being paved. Whatever those issues are, for us to be able to soak that knowledge ourselves, to be able to read different sources, to be able to have conversations with others about these topics, this is how we get ready for engaging with our members or with other government officials so that they understand, or at least at the very minimum here, what the main priorities of a constituency are. This is, I think, really going to be very, very important for us as we move forward, as we've started to think about how we can improve our civics. Without understanding the issues, how in the world can we change anything? We can't. That's exactly what Ellery did when he was one to be able to talk with these people. And he got those ideas. He understood how his local government worked, and he was able to translate that and bring that to his career as a legislator, as a representative for the colony of Rhode Island. The second lesson to take away from William Ellery, and I'll put this in of an adage form, which is, the right time to do the right thing is now, but always have realistic expectations. This is in reference to Ellery's stance on slavery. He knew that most people at the time didn't have an appetite for staunch anti-slavery platforms, but he still nevertheless espoused it. But he didn't do so thinking that he was going to start a major abolitionist movement single-handedly. He found another partner, Rufus King, to support him in his platform about anti-slavery, about ensuring that one day slavery will be behind us in America, and that it will no longer be a way of life in the United States. While this was clearly a very bold idea at the time, yet Ellery, I think, really put this into context, and he didn't let unrealistic expectations make him start going all around and telling people that they were all bad people because they didn't 
support his anti-slavery movement. That, I think, is a big difference between leaders and activists. I, I just had to say, activism in some form or another, when it's for, for motivation, for good moral leadership purposes, uh, for people to do good things, to be able to take that moral high ground, activism is important. But what's unfortunately happening nowadays is that there are people who are being activists who claim that they have moral superiority, and yet they just act the opposite. They start harassing people. They start attacking people. I, I have no doubt that there were members of the Sons of Liberty at the time who were taking measures, who were doing things that don't represent the values and the ideals that the signers wanted to accomplish. So it's important to have that in mind. You know, not saying that people can't be passionate about particular political causes, uh, but it's not particularly helpful for one's cause to start acting the opposite of the values in which one espouses. That was one of the reasons why certain abolitionists became more successful than others, because of their tactics. Think about John Brown as an example, one who tried to overtake a federal armory, not only did so in a terrible way, but it just gave a really bad name for the uh, abolitionist movement and ultimately was what fueled South Carolina to be that first state to secede from the Union. Ellery and King were political masterminds. They knew that they didn't have enough political capital to be able to really propel a movement, but they still were able to accomplish what they wanted to do. They were able to put in an anti-slavery provision in a 1787 law. Um, it's it's not all is about the result. It should be about a journey. That a journey for Ellery's family would last multi-generations reaching all the way to his uh, his grandson, William Ellery Channing. To, to think long-term, that is also important as well. But anyway, to set those high expectations, yes, it is good to pursue uh, good deeds and to do them to inspire others to do so. But be realistic about those expectations. That will make you more a civics leader rather than just an activist. And by being a leader, you'll be able to inspire more people, and people will eventually, over time, may not be as quick as you want to, but over time, may be able to have some kind of good taste in the causes of goodness that you believe in. The final lesson that I would say is, have courage in politics, but always be an effective leader. You know, you have to, kind of like how I mentioned in the previous lesson here, which is you have to have that courage, you have to have that willingness. Like I read to you with that quote from Ellery, he said, you, you have to bring it out within yourself. Keeping one's beliefs to oneself is not going to change anybody. It's not going to inspire change. It seems like nowadays, in the age of social media, holding a cardboard sign showing that you want more love, that's not change. That's not being courageous. That's not taking a risk and doing the hard things. We really need to learn how to teach future generations on what courage is and to be an example of that. Courage is about going after hard causes, ones of goodness, and ones that require one to, to make big sacrifices. It's people like William Ellery who had to essentially lose his house and his finances for a cause that wasn't fully realized. True 
courage is not about overcoming obstacles just for yourself, but it's also being a leader and helping to break down barriers for other people as well. Ellery knew that what he was in, when he saw those facial expressions, he knew that every single one of them was doing something risky. And he didn't know what exactly was going to happen. But I think one of the reasons why he was standing there and he saw those expressions, he wanted to see how they reacted, was because he knew that every single one of them in their individual capacities were inspiring others and breaking down barriers for other people. Whether it's people around that time, the contemporary times of the 1770s, or it's future generations who are living right now in 2022. Those are the kinds of signs of courageous actions, of thinking about that long term, uh, making sure that people will read about that history and understand that people took those risks for uh, the greater good. You know, so many of these people, like like those of William Ellery and John Hancock of others, they could have gone down the path of Andrew Allen. But no one remembers Andrew Allen. Uh, certainly no one remembers him for what he did to the colonial cause. And he had his own reasons. He wanted to protect his own property. That's that's understandable. But he, he didn't think about the repercussions and the consequences of doing what he did, which was abandoning a platform where people were trying to do good, not just for that generation, but for future generations. And we just may often have to remember that countless people in the past, through various different actions, through various different causes, have gotten us to this point where we're able to enjoy some level of freedom, of prosperity, of justice. And that, to me, and to all of us, is something to revere about for so many people, whether they, we remember them as famous people or what maybe the people who didn't have the biggest names like Willie Mallory. These people played a role in having that courage and to set those precedents of courage for people in the future to be able to learn from and to be able to harness in their future endeavors. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode about William Ellery. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, make sure you subscribe to our email list and consider joining as a Patreon member. Have a wonderful rest of your President's Day and the rest of your week. Remember, a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. <laughs>